next presentation is Back from the Brink, a systems engineering approach to coral triage and rehabilitation uh, by Nikki Bridges, or Nikki Reefed Up Bridges, I guess, right? <clears throat> uh, she's a multidisciplinary systems engineer, a military spouse, and a mom to two amazing kids. Uh, she's the daughter of a wildlife rehabilitator and native plant rescuer. She's been, for the past 14 years, her passion has been in uh, rehabilitating successfully uh, 250 injured and diseased coral and fish. Her efforts have also included endangered species, uh, reef restoration, and, and uh, marine debris removal in Honduras. Um, she documents these rehabilitation efforts on her blog, Coral Ever After. Um, she's spent over 30 years in the, uh, uh, in the aquarium hobby and currently has a 120-gallon reef display, multiple quarantine treatment systems, and a Bergia nudibranch, a breeding system. So welcome to the stage, Nicole Bridges. Thank you for the introduction. All right, so before we get started, of course, I'd like to say thank you for everyone who helped put this together, from the leadership, volunteers, sponsors, vendors, all the attendees, even the um, convention hosts, and the, all the you know hotels and everybody. This has been truly a remarkable event, so I really appreciate all the hard work that went into this. But let's talk about the schedule. 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Honestly, I was excited because I knew I was gonna have the most hardcore group of reef keepers in all of MACNA. So, well done, you guys. All right, so as the slide says, I'm Nikki Bridges. I go by Reefed Up on most forums. Uh, so when I was asked to speak, I had to reflect. You know, the last few years have been really hard for everyone, and we haven't been able to meet in most capacities. With the theme of this year of gathering and growing, that's a way forward for us as a community. But what's preventing that growth for the corals as a whole? And as a, you know, I'm just a hobbyist, so what can I do? I can't, you know, yeah, I could spawn some corals in my basement, but that feels a little bit out of reach for me. So I'm gonna go into some of the ways that we can all bring whatever expertise we individually have and pull that all together and hopefully better not only our hobby, but the scientific community as well. So just to help wake you guys up a little bit, get some movement going. I'm gonna ask you a question, just raise your hand. How many of you have had a coral that you really loved and you watched it die, no matter what you did, you couldn't stop it from dying? All right, that's where I come in. So as most of us are well aware, reef degradation is ongoing globally. While our knowledge is rapidly increasing, it's not sufficiently rapid. Over the last 40 years, there's only been an average of one coral disease described each year. One. There are substantial gaps in the applicability of that research of native habitats to our hobby and what we can do. And these native habitats are really complex systems. We try our best to replicate those in our home aquarium, which can help or hinder our success. So Aquarius, you all have come up with some incredibly innovative treatments for various diseases, pests, parasites, um, all sorts of DIY projects. The, the innovation here is incredible. We need more of that. We need to make it readily scalable for the scientific community as well. Uh, and listening to uh, the, the uh, Coral Biobank, 
you know, the Living Coral Biobank, they are talking about all the things that we have done as hobbyists and the community to further their research. We have enabled that sort of technology to facilitate keeping all these things on land. But we need more of that. So since death is a process, a systems engineering approach can bring all the different disciplines together to help develop interventions. But we need to crowdsource more of that information to develop faster and better protocols for treating these unhealthy corals and to help deliver that information to the corals on the reefs. We all need to actively contribute and with whatever we have individually as expertise. So why are we here? This presentation is built on over well over 250 successful rehabilitations. These are just some of the before and after photos of what I've worked on. They've, uh, my rehabilitations have ranged from corals to fish, invertebrates, pretty much you name it. But my specialty and the focus of this presentation is on coral rehabilitations. So we'll walk through what I consider the most important aspect of rehabilitating corals in aquaria. Some unique challenges, some pests and parasites that might be a bit uncommon, just for some fun, and along with various diseases and syndromes I've encountered along the way. And this photo is probably one of the most heartbreaking photos I've ever taken. Uh, it was out of an Elkhorn coral in the Florida Keys in 2014. And hopefully you'll keep this in mind throughout the presentation as to why what we all can contribute to this hobby is so important. Okay, so I mean, there was a, thank you for the introduction, uh, but just a little bit more information. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an engineer by trade, uh, aerospace, mechanical, and uh, electronics, and aquariums are just my hobby. I've been keeping aquariums for pretty much as long as I can remember. They've always been a part of my life, and I've been doing reef keeping for 14 years. Blogging for the last 10, uh, I've got my blog here, Coral Ever After. I'm not the best at keeping it up to date. That's just another little part of the hobby. But I also help out with the Washington Area Marine Aquarium Society. And if you haven't already, please check out your program. Um, Tom Land put together a great article on the work that we're helping to support at the Living Coral Biobank. Um, so I'm also a military spouse and mom to two amazing kids. Thank you all for coming. And um, you you've might have heard them a little bit already, uh, or will soon. So. <laughs> and. Um, for those of you who have had enough coffee and put it all together, yes, you're right, we move frequently, so all my corals do too. And you're gonna hear about some of these corals who, that have moved state to state to state with me, and that is in its own a complete adventure. In my infinite free time, I also scuba dive, and I love to volunteer with uh, whatever sort of reef cleanups and restorations I can do when I'm at location. So that being said, I'm not a photographer. These are all my own photo photographs in here, but I, I will not amaze you with those. Um, I also am not a vet or doctor, or I have no medical background whatsoever. This is just some of what works for me some of the time. So I put this, I always get asked the question, where did I get started in this? And of course I was like, my mom's a native plant rescuer and wildlife rehabilitator and I had no interest in that growing up. Um, we always had weird sorts of creatures growing up as a kid, including a fox. Um, <laughs> that alligator snapping turtle was a very interesting case as well. 
But then I realized after you know talking about this a little bit more, no, I'm actually a granddaughter of another wildlife rehabilitator. My grandma did this as well. So I guess it just comes to me and I, I really love this. But then I went off to college and I found a free aquarium at a yard sale. I thought the expensive part was over. Yeah. So while my corals and my fish were eating better than I was, I started going to all the fish stores and all I could afford were like the bargain bin corals that looked really bad that nobody else wanted that had, you know, were covered in all sorts of aptasia. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's all I can afford, so sure, I'll buy it. And I brought it back and they were beautiful. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. And then I got a real job and I could afford the nice pretty corals and I realized I don't want those. So ever since then, I started just going and finding the worst corals I could possibly find and I loved seeing that transformation over time. And after that, it was all history. So I have to thank my family for supporting my insane obsession with this. This is one of my old rescuing systems. Unfortunately, being based in the DC area, that I don't have this sort of space anymore. Uh, but the, area, the idea is still the same. So this had two coral quarantines, two fish quarantines, and a grow out and all the supporting equipment that went along with this. So it is, I, I would love to expand, but not, the time is not right. So while I may not have a medical background, I believe I can still contribute to the greater knowledge by my systems engineering approach, which anecdotally appears to work based on success. Just like in my professional life, corals live in a really complex environment where all the interacting parts affect each other in novel ways. We need to look at the biology, the mechanical, the chemistry, all the different underpinnings of the system to understand that big picture. You all already do this. It's just a formalization of that thought process. Systems engineering brings those thought processes to connect the pieces of the system throughout the life cycle across the various biological functions, anatomical structure, and behavior. So with that interconnected knowledge, we can use tools to identify patterns, model to predict outcomes, determine how things went wrong, and why. So as we go through this thought process, we have to start with assumptions. Yes, engineer, sorry. So down the corner here is a Venn diagram. We're gonna start off early, it's early. We're gonna start off simple. Won't get too nerdy, quite yet. So many problems in Aquaria are multifactorial. Something hosts an agent, and, but the environment has to also be conducive for that problem to really manifest. When a coral is dying, the environment is often, uh, in, in an Aquaria, the most easiest thing to control. So that's where I start. I remove the dying coral from the environment and place in an aquarium that I know is as ideal as possible. From there, I work to minimize the host and agent interactions thus minimizing the central area for problems to occur. So about 10 years ago, I started noticing a pattern to all these corals I, I was bringing in and trying to rehabilitate. I could place them into buckets, different categories of how they looked, all the different signs I was seeing, and what their outcomes were going to be. So, these, this, these coral, different buckets need different treatments, different protocol, different resources. So this next section is based off of the refinement of documenting those patterns. 
So the weird side of my hobby is whenever I can get a free, free day, I go out searching for all the corals that I can possibly help save. I go to all the different fish stores, hobbyists, wherever I can to find some dying coral. Typically, I bring home a box of 20, all in various stages of dying. Over the years, what I found is that categorizing them can have profound effects on their, treat, on their outcome. Ultimately, we need to create a usable diagnosis, and I'm using that term very loosely as this is not really a medical briefing, this is more of just a thought process. Mm -hmm. What is causing the coral to decline? Typically in industry, we see the root cause diagram depicted as a tree. There's the foliage, there's the trunk, there's the roots. However, the way I like to think about it is more like this algae. You have the signs up here. These are the things that you can visibly see. That's what's going on with the coral. If you trace those signs back, you have a problem. And there can be more than one problem with very different signs. However, sometimes there are more than one root causes, all causing multiple problems, multiple signs. It's a very complex environment and we have to think about all these different ways they all interact. So as an example, if corals in this tank started retracting, bleaching, just overall looking pretty sad, those are signs that we can observe. The problem may be that the tank water is 85 degrees and the root cause may be just a broken heater. So about four years ago, thanks to Tom Land here who encouraged me, I started formalizing the patterns I noticed. And once I made this chart, it has worked for me time and time again. And I realize this is an eye chart, I'm gonna zoom into it a little bit here and there, and you'll be able to see it much more. But the, the concept is that it's an intervention process, and I'll go through everything in just a moment. But at the hobbyist level, with a batch of declining coral, I use these signs to determine what I need to do. I start at the top in the terminal range. From there, uh, so those corals, in my experience, have essentially no chance of survival. I just, no matter what I do, I, there is no hope. So if the coral's not in that category, I move down to the emerging category. These ones, these corals, need all-encompassing immediate care. This is where I have to place the most resources. And not, that's not always possible. If it doesn't fit into the, into the terminal or the emergent category, I place it, I look next at the urgent category. Corals with these sorts of signs, they need a lot of care, but I might have some more time. I can take a breather, I can work on the corals that need more care first, especially when I have such a large group of corals, and I don't have to worry about it too much. Next, I move down into the routine category. These corals, pretty standard. I can take my time, they don't need a lot of resources. This is where it's pretty easy. Like these are fun, it's really rewarding, and I don't have to stress. But really, it'd be great if we could take all the corals up here in the terminal or emergent or urgent, and through better science, more modern techniques, we can start moving those signs and placing them down into this routine category. So going back to the top of the flow chart is the terminal section. The first question I look at is, is there tissue? And that probably sounds like an insane first step to most of you. So 
I look at it to see what's going on. Sometimes there's nothing left of the coral by the time I get it home. Next, I look for, is there fluorescence? Of course, this varies by coral species, but typically this is a really good indicator of coral health. Unfortunately, these corals were the subject of a literal bleach bath by an angry customer at a local fish store. I tried, but there was nothing I could do. I took in a bunch of those corals and I had no hope, but I gave it my all, nothing survived. Next, I look for, is there more than 50% of a mouth? Of course, this also varies by coral species and comorbidities, but this is a good general rule. Um, if it's not your own coral in your own aquarium, if this is a, somebody else's coral in a different uh, aquarium. Now, this scalemia, it has, you know, it has bleaching, it has some, it looks like a sign of infection. It's been probably stung or the infection has just, you know, degraded that much. I don't know, but again, this one did not survive. Next, I like to see if the mouth is gaping. If, that, if the mouth is gaping, that's another sign. And I don't mean like the coral is expelling waste or it's eating or anything like that. I mean gaping with no responsiveness, it's just hanging open and there's, you know, no matter what you do, you can't get it to move. And the last one I look for is, are there mesenthelial filaments present? Down inside the coral, I look to see, is there any sort of digestive tract left? What's going on down inside of the coral? Because sometimes the coral will rot out from on the inside, and there's really, I have found nothing that I can do to help those corals. But, okay, so if, if any of these, if we make it through this flowchart, we get to the terminal section, I really have not found a way to get these corals to survive. I would love to change that, but we're not there yet. If it's not in the terminal section, next I move to consider if it's part of an emergent category. Here, I consider if the coral has been exposed to improper chemicals. So this coral right here at the top uh, is actually a Miami hurricane chalice that was exposed on a local fish store to an overdose of some chemicals. And I don't know if it was, you know, the result of those chemicals or the chemicals themselves um, that caused this, but almost all the corals in the fish store looked like that. So I had to deal with a lot of those. If it's not, then I look for, is the skeleton visible? And I'll go into that in just a moment. But if the skeleton's not visible or it's just slightly, I also look for signs of a brown jelly substance. And that's down in this picture here. Okay, so going back to the skeleton, I look for, uh, so I worry less if the skeleton's covered in macroalgae or, you know, it, coralline algae, as that means the coral has probably been declining for a very long time. That means I have time to work with it. What really concerns me here is if the, if the skeleton looks like concrete. If you've ever seen this, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very dull grayish green, just kind of weird color. And it usually extends underneath the coral. I'm also looking for if the coral is, the skeleton is bright white. That means the necrosis is rapidly occurring. The coral is going fast. And I also look to see if the skeleton is pink. And I don't mean coralline algae. Um, this is something I'm gonna go into just a little bit more. But those are the things that I really am worried about. These things need fast care. All of these corals survived, except for this last one here in the pink. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. 
But I'd like to focus on using this homophilia coral as an example. So first I considered if it was exposed to improper chemicals, which to my knowledge, it was not. Next, I considered if the skeleton was visible. Well, yes, definitely. Is it coralline or algae encrusted? It has that green hue, but no, this appeared to be very different. It looked like concrete. It had that light green skeleton that makes me pretty concerned pretty fast. So I considered this an emergent case. And let's face it, I opened up the bag that this was in, and this was probably the worst smelling coral I have ever come across. Even across dying Xenia, this, this was so bad. So what I did was I took it in and immediately trimmed off all the excess skeleton and removed as much as a, of the rotting tissue as I could. There's, it was very hard to tell in this coral what was still possibly healthy and what was definitely rotting. This coral was in bad shape. So I did the best I could. Next, I went through my DIP protocol, and I'll go into that in a little bit more in a moment, but I have a very specific set of protocol I use for different problems and corals, and it's very complex, but I'll do some basics in a moment. And then next, I use veterinary grade glue to help seal the rest of the remaining healthy tissue, what I thought was healthy, down to the skeleton to help it regrow and help it you know, keep from getting further infection or irritation from being in the water. So it went into quarantine for 30 days. Every single day, if not multiple times a day, I would check on it. Is it okay? Is, it any, you know, is algae growing? Is it further receding? Are there other problems that I missed? What is going on every day? After 30 days, where it was starting to look okay, it was time for the 30-day, no kidding, recheck. At this point, if I haven't noticed any other problems, I do, I repeat the whole process. I remove all the excess skeleton. I, you know, re-dip everything through the same protocol or slightly modified. And if there's any tissue, typically I don't have to re-glue it, but you know, in case there's a little nick or something during the trimming, I you know, take care of it then. If there are no more problems, I haven't found any other pests or anything else, it's time for grow out. It goes into grow out for another 30 days, where I check on it still daily, but I'm not as concerned. I don't sit there and you know, really study it. I don't photograph it constantly. It's usually pretty good at that point. After 30 days in grow out, if there are still no problems, then it's ready for another set of dips and transfer to its permanent home. So this one made a full recovery. Uh, I actually was able to get two nice sized frags off of this coral. So even though it was Looking like that, we got there. Okay, so if we're not into the uh, terminal or emerging categories, next I consider if it's an urgent category. This area has challenging signs, but I, I still have time. I can work with these. So for instance, coral bleaching, that's a serious concern. Um, so this acanthophilia, yes, looks bad. Made a full recovery. But if the tissue's not bleached, then I look for other signs in the tissue. Is the tissue clinging? Is the coral's mouth unresponsive? If there's some tissue uh, decay, necrosis, you know, like this for this acropora, is there an evidence of pests or parasites? 
And then if not, is there a sign of infection that isn't otherwise categorized by other parts of this uh, flow chart? If any of these move us to the urgent category, I really need to focus on these coral. So just so everyone's aware, all of these corals survived, and I have currently these four corals in my tank. Uh, this one went off to a permanent home elsewhere. But I've had this coral, this lobophilia, now for 12 years across uh, with three different moves and four different states. So let's use that one as an example. So the overall process is really similar for urgent as emergent. It's just the amount of resources, the amount of time that I dedicate to these corals. So of course the tissue is not white, it's a little lighter than I would prefer, but it's not too bad. Is the tissue clinging? And this is what I consider like that long term, no matter what you do, the tissue is just clinging to the skeleton and it's not inflating. I don't like to see that in corals, so at this point, I decided to classify it as urgent. So once again, I brought it in. I trimmed off the sharp points on the coral. And this helps the coral regrow back over its original skeleton. At the time of this photo, I did not have a bandsaw, so I probably today would trim this down even further with a bandsaw, but at the time, I did what I could. I went through my dip protocol and then placed it into quarantine. Every day I checked on it. At 30 days, I reevaluated it, went through the dip process again, moved it to the grow out section, checked on it every day, 30 days, did my dip process, and at that point, it was good to go. I still have this coral, but I do want to point out, notice the timeline here. We're looking at from 2011 to 2019 here one splitting head to four heads. These corals that have had a period of decline can take a very long time to really hit their normal growth rates. In the last three years, this coral has doubled in size. This coral is finally starting to take off. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Yes, these are very rewarding, but sometimes they stay small and stay sad looking for a very long time. The last category is the routine category. Unfortunately, corals that look like this, they're often sent to the live rock bin, but these are some of the easiest to rehabilitate. Mild bleaching, poor fragging, uh, stress from poor water quality, coraline covered skeletons, browning, a lack of polyp extension, slow tissue reception, and burnt tips are all signs that the coral just needs a good environment. And once again, all of these corals survived. And I still have a lot of them. Okay, so now that we're in the routine category, we're gonna go through some basic processes. I'm not gonna go through the urgent and emergent categories for some really specific examples because they are so complex with the different dips I do and the different treatments. I, every single coral is almost entirely different. Uh, but this, the routine category, we can pretty much treat the same. So this coral had browning and aptasia, oh, sorry, majanos covering it, uh, but it has a coralline covered skeleton. Not too bad. So first, I started off with my a more in-depth inspection. 
look at, look at it with white light. Okay, see if there's anything that I notice obviously. And I also look at it under UV light. Different parasites and pests can manifest very differently under different types of light. So you may miss something if you only look at it underneath one type of light. And I also look to check on it for fluorescent health. That gives me an idea of what sort of care the coral is gonna need long term. But my favorite part of the inspection is zooming in, taking a look at the coral more closely to see what's going on. And it gives me a, an idea of what's going on over the coral over time. If I take photos, I, have, you know, I can really notice changes that I might not notice just looking at it with my you know, standard eyeballs. Next, I remove as much of the excess skeleton or other substrate as possible to open up the skeleton and allow the tissue to regrow more easily. Of course, this also depends on the coral species. Uh, as a rule, I don't perform this on fungia corals. If you're not familiar, these corals, if it looks like this, have a chance of making tons and tons of little babies. They become a baby factory and they're so fun to watch. Um, so I actually love to rescue these. But I do take down these, you know, these really sharp points here to help the coral regrow. If I had not done that, the coral would look deformed for a very long time. Um, this coral is currently regrowing right now and rehealed over those points in about, uh, about two weeks. Whereas if I had left it there, it would have taken you know, probably a year or so to cover back over that. Um, I use a bandsaw and I use heavy duty toenail cutters, which probably sounds weird. Most of you probably use actual bone cutters, but my hands are small and I just cannot wield those big bone cutters. So do what you can. And let's face it, I'm a nerd. So I love to 3D print. And so I made this 3D uh, dip stirrer tank. Um, it's not my actual print files, but I adapted it from some other designs. If you're interested, the instructions are on my website. It's, it's a really fun build. But I like this, rather than using a pipette or a pump to you know, stir dip solutions around the corals, because I feel like it's more, um, it's more steady and it's less, you know, it's, it's gentler on the corals themselves. Plus it has a removable rack, so I just pull the corals up and out of the solution. I don't interact with it, which helps my personal safety. So from the most routine of routine cases, I use a three-dip process. However, this process, as I mentioned, varies widely across species and all the issues and it, signs and the triage category is just, let's just start real basic. So typically I start with a hydrogen peroxide and tank water dip. And I know this is a, can be a bit controversial because there's a lot of corals that don't react well to this sort of dip. So again, take this with a grain of salt. This is not all encompassing. The amount, the ratios that I use vary widely as well. I don't recommend this one for one, but I do have to use that one for one ratio quite often. Again, that is a very severe treatment in some cases, but it's sometimes necessary. So you can see the pectinia coral in that dip here. Then I follow that dip by whatever I notice is specific is going on with that coral. And then last, I've been using Coral RX for pretty much since I started the hobby. It works. I, th there are so many other great dips. I'm sure that you know whatever you're using probably is just as good, but I really like Coral RX, and I always use that one as my last one. I've noticed that using Coral RX as my last dip somehow is, is better, 
and I can't tell you why, but that's just what I've noticed. It seems, if I move it to my second dip or my first dip, I don't seem to have as good of results, and I don't know why, but that's just anecdotes. But this coral was gonna be a little bit trickier than I thought. I thought it was gonna be in the routine category, easy, clean it up, it was gonna be great. Nope, nope, cross out that routine, because as I'm, as I'm monitoring it, I realize my triple dips failed. I revised my usable diagnosis because it has here what I think were ostracods, and typically ostracods are harmless, and I don't have a problem with them, but these were covering the coral. All of my other corals were fine. This coral was just covered. I was like, well, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but I just don't like this. I'm gonna remove everything I can to try to help this coral. So I implemented a breaking the life cycle with dips. Wasn't too sure of you know, how ostracods reproduce. I was like, ah, I'm not gonna take any chances. Let's just get rid of these things. So I started this dip process. And I'm gonna go into more of how I came up with this sort of dip process uh, in a little bit. But after I did that, it had to go through an additional quarantine. Another 30 days, you're right, 90 days to get this coral back to good health. Not fun. So yes, this process is incredibly stressful for the coral. It is dying and you're inducing more stress to the coral. So you have to take all those factors into consideration. Yes, this looks pretty bad. Arguably worse than this one, but it is necessary. Once it was healthy, it went back to its permanent home. All right, let's move into some challenges for care. So as I briefly mentioned, there are a lot of challenges to helping corals recover. Corals are dying for a reason, and we have to ensure that we take into consideration all those factors, especially my personal safety. I've got a family to take care of, right? This is a little, a little sketchy. So the decaying tissue can wreak havoc on an aquarium. You know, talking about all the different uh, presentations on nitrates and everything, all the phosphates and nutrient, you know, balancing. Oh, that, that is super fun in this sort of scenario. Uh, some tank inhabitants like to try to help. They remove the dying tissue from the coral and take some of the healthy coral with it and like to get in there to the digestive tract of the coral and end up completely destroying some of these. So I can't have crabs in my quarantine tanks, um, those sorts of things. Uh, some of these corals, like to try to have one last hurrah with a reproduction event, which is really cool to watch. Not good for the coral's health, and it's also not good for my, my aquarium's biological filter as well. Um, sanitization and ensuring I had all the proper treatments available during the pandemic was insane. I can't tell you how many times I had to go store to store to store to store trying to find some bleach. I pretty much had to cease all uh, rehab efforts during that time because I just could not get the supplies. And it's still not easy on a good day. Then there are the long-term growth issues, which I mentioned before as well. Some of these corals can take years to start growing like healthy specimens. But going back to safety for a minute, there's, I'm always trying to avoid corals that are dying for, you know, that I cannot safely accommodate. 
uh, especially if I have any open cuts on my hands or anything. Of course, I wear my personal protective equipment. Uh, during COVID, I started printing face masks for various uh, emergency personnel that were working with the pandemic. I was like, hey, what? I need one of these for myself. So if you have a 3D printer and want to make your own, can help you out, the instructions are on my website. Um, but yeah, I wear my goggles, glass, you know, gloves, whatever I can to help stay safe during all this as well. Mitigating all the risks I can where feasible. Also note, if you like more information on some of these diseases, um, check out the Masna booth. They have a great handout on some of these with a lot more detail. And what would be a talk about rehabilitation without some ethical considerations? In addition to all the logistics and safety challenges, there are also substantial ethical considerations for these efforts. First off, of course an owner of a dying coral doesn't want to take a loss, so they may sell it. Well, if someone buys that coral, that's essentially incentivizing substandard coral you know, care. So I have to, and I have to worry that this sort of presentation may make it seem like coral rehabilitation is really easy and I might accidentally increase the confidence of people to go and try to save these corals and that can cause substantial concerns as well. Of course, these dying corals can spread the problem to other corals and this threatening situation has to be mitigated through multiple levels of quarantine, segregated tanks and sterilized equipment. And similar to purchasing dying coral is the idea of flipping dying corals for a profit. <sighs> corals are not houses. These are living creatures that need proper care. Profit optimization undermines that care. And as mentioned, these corals can have degraded health, you know, degraded growth rates for a substantial period, sometimes more than a year. So I really have to question if that's even a viable option. Then, there's the more philosophical consideration of having to determine what lives and dies. I have limited resources. If I am given the option of rescuing a 75 gallon tank full of dying xenia or a single scalemia, I'm gonna go with that scalemia every single time. Is that fair? Is that right? I don't have the option of making that determination. I cannot support that and that that can have some real world consequences. So bottom line, please take away from this presentation that coral rehabilitation is for researching problems, bringing all these solutions together for the hobby and for the reefs, and let's try to minimize our personal benefits. Okay, let's move into a little bit more of the fun section. Uh, some interesting pests and parasites that I've found along the way that maybe you have or haven't seen. So you're probably familiar with acro-eating flatworms, but I thought I'd share some other ones. So if you'll recall my intake procedure, oh, sorry. Here is a coral that is dying, and up there in the corner, or up there in the center, there's an LPS flatworm. Pretty hard to see under actinics, and arguably hard to see just in general. But under white light, you can see it's a little bit more contrasted with the coral, maybe. Maybe, I don't know if the lighting in here is good enough. I promise you, in person, vastly different, and it was very easy to spot. And that's why I always look under both. Another interesting one is this guy. All right, so I was getting ready for bed. 
It's like, oh, I'll just go check on my tanks one last time before bedtime, feed them. And then I notice these little red things, little tiny red dots bubbling up and swimming really fast to the surface of my aquarium. Oh boy. Okay, they look like the little red mices. Like that's, haven't seen those before. That's, that's not good. It's like, all right, that's gonna have to wait. So I got a sample, got out my microscope. Okay, I don't know. I, I'm seeing this thing, it's kind of spongy. It's got this forked tail that's whipping around really fast. And it has internal organs and it's breathing. Oh, yeah, I definitely had some nightmares that night. So I have to thank Dr. Peter Johnson of the Johnson Laboratory out in Colorado. He identified this. So these are um, fluke securiae, uh, basically part of the life cycle of flukes. They are shed from snails for months. Fish eat them. They infect the fish as actual flukes. The fish, you know, basically complete the life cycle, so it's a two-host life cycle. I can tell you right now, I have not bought any invertebrates since finding those. The nightmares just keep coming back, so. But again, there's all sorts of other LPS flatworms, polyclad flat, I mean, there's just, they're really cool. I couldn't post, you know, put up all the different sorts of flatworms I've found, but these are some of the more interesting ones. So once again, red bugs are fairly common. However, I've also found these little gray bugs that are about half the size of red bugs. Those were quite a challenge to find and deal with. Lots of spiders on various different species of coral. So these were on Micromusa, these were on Monopora, and these were on Zoanthids. And of course, I've had my fair share of various uh, nuisance crabs. Um, although I really debate if gall crabs are actually a nuisance or not, but we can take that offline. I like them. Uh, I think they're the ugliest, coolest thing. And then there are various predatory nudibranchs, and I don't see these very often, but I lump the pyramid snails in here as well, just because I take in various invertebrates. Um, and I found these even on colonista snails and stomatella snails. So if you think that those are just harmless hitchhikers, uh, they could be carrying these pyramid snails, which can, you know, infect other snails and clams and that sort of thing. So, suspect everything. All right, so let's get super nerdy now. So as a hobbyist with limited samples, I model. I model the life cycle of various pests. I've done flatworm, acre-eating flatworms, red bugs, monopore-eating nudibranchs, um, red planaria, a few other different things. And a lot of that is from, I take, you know, you as hobbyists, you as professionals, all of this goes into these research studies that document how many eggs these things lay, how often they lay those eggs, what's the mortality rate, how often are they reproducing, what's the lifespan of these pests. Well, with that information, we can model that. We know coral growth rates, roughly-ish. We can start to kind of figure out, you know, how much are these things eating? And then we can start to play with, how do we treat these? So, going into the model a little bit, we can just try to figure out, hey, if we turn, add in a Coral RX dip multiple times, we do these other sorts of dips, how often do we have to do these dips to break that life cycle where there are not enough adults to reproduce and lay the eggs? 
Um, there's all sorts of fun things you can do with this. So I really enjoyed this project. Um, if anyone is super nerdy and wants to see the code or you know, take this further, happy to work with you. So while I may have a good handle on some of the straightforward cases, there's still a lot of knowledge that the hobby is lacking, and these are some of the areas where I really could use some additional help. I'd love to chat with anyone offline if they have any other ideas. Um, all right, this one doesn't really fit in with the disease, it's more of a condition, invasive sort of thing. Boring sponges. So I haven't figured out how to handle these yet, but I also rarely encounter them. Uh, here in the top right, you can see a coral that was out, um, I forget where I saw the scuba diving. There's a coral and it has all these orange sponges growing up and out through it. Probably not the best thing for the coral, right? Well, recently I took in a hammer coral that wasn't doing so great. And I cut off the skeleton like I normally do and I norm noticed this orangey gross mass inside of it. I couldn't really see the skeleton. I was like, ugh, what's this? Okay, so I decided to take a little, uh, little sample here. Did a little slice. Okay, again, what's going on? So I took a slice from a healthy uh, hammer coral as comparison. Okay, well, so for those of you who aren't familiar with boring sponges, they essentially grow inside the coral and dissolve the skeleton from within. So you can see tiny little pieces of the matrix in this part um, inside the skeletal degradation, just little tiny pieces of skeleton left. So I bleached the little slice I had, and you can see how the skeleton is all degraded throughout. What I found more interesting, we can actually see the tunnels through the skeleton on here. But I don't know how to treat this. I've tried various things. It doesn't dissolve in vinegar. It doesn't dissolve in hydrogen peroxide. It just keeps growing. I've tried physically removing it. I would love to get some ideas here. And these are some of the corals that I've brought back to full health. However, they were a challenge. Notice I have them in the urgent category. Whenever I see corals that have this blotchy, uneven bleaching, I begin to suspect it's bacterial related. As I've mentioned, a lot of the problems in this hobby are uh, multifactorial, so sometimes just moving the coral to a new environment can help. Uh, with Vibrio in particular, we have to you know, consider higher nutrients, higher temperatures. I'm gonna start going a little bit faster, sorry. Brown jelly, potentially also multifactorial. Um, different bacteria combines with possibly some poor environmental conditions and ciliates could possibly be causing brown jelly. I know Cipro's you know, probably the most commonly used treatment right now, but now I worry about, are we creating antibiotic resistance in this hobby? What are we doing that we may not even realize? And while I've you know, successfully rescued a lot of corals, um, pink skeletal staining is definitely one that, again, not coralline algae, but I don't know what this is. It's like the coral is having some sort of defense mechanism. And trichophilia zoanthella loss, um, this is different than regular bleaching. This is more uniform, and just the fluorescent pigments relying. The zoanthella is gone, essentially. Uh, I wonder if there's some sort of programmed cell death occurring with these corals in a response to a stressor, and it just runs out of control. 
Again, would love to see more information here. Elegance coral syndrome, some of you are probably familiar with this one where there's these stringy loops. I've tried various treatments on these and I have very little success. And this one's really interesting. Um, corals start off really bleached. They turn this dull grayish blue and then they start to die. They start to recede. Um, I'm wondering if the type of zooxanthellae that repopulate initially just isn't sufficient to sustain the coral's health, and so they slowly starve to death. I have no idea. This is just a guess. Um, this last, the coral down here on the bottom, I've actually been feeding uh, constantly, even though it has its color back, and it survived longer than most. So it'll be interesting to see what comes on that one. So in conclusion, uh, we all have to make a difference with whatever backgrounds we have. We can all bring unique perspectives to better the hobby and the greater scientific community. Death is a process, so a systems engineering approach is uniquely situated to handle interventions through root cause identification, cor correlation of signs to usable diagnoses, and development of a systems view of health and well-being. As hobbyists, uh, as each of us can contribute to the overall knowledge, uh, systems engineering can help crowdsource that information and utilize all these different tools to pull it all together. With this sort of effort, we can develop better protocols for treating unhealthy corals and transfer that information to uh, efforts on the reefs. As hobbyists, we can reduce our losses and contribute to the broader scientific community. Thank you all so much for coming.